You're listening to the Autism Weekly Podcast. Each week we share community voices and bring light to stories that increase awareness, acceptance, equity, access, and inclusion. If you haven't already, subscribe to join the Autism Weekly family. I'm your host, Jeff Skibitsky. This week, we are joined by Dr. Natalie Roth, a licensed clinical psychologist with a PhD in childhood neurodevelopment delays. She is responsible for ensuring the highest quality of data-driven psychological care that's delivered at ABS Kids locations throughout the state of Utah. Dr. Roth attended the University of Utah and graduated from the American Psychological Association approved psychology program at the Fuller Theological Seminary. She gained valuable experience during her practicum at the University of South Car- uh, Southern California and internships at St. John's Child Development Center in Santa Monica, California. We're thrilled to have Dr. Roth on today's episode to, talk, to, to discuss the process of an autism spectrum diagnosis. Dr. Roth, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me back. Oh, it's it's my pleasure. And and quite frankly, it's uh, each time you come back, I feel like our field has shifted enough that it's like a new conversation, a new dialogue, and maybe that's where we can start. And so, Natalie, the, one of the things I've seen over the last two, three years is a change in the way that we're approaching diagnoses, um, especially with younger kids. What has happened over the last two, three years that has maybe modified or, or prioritized different sorts of methodologies? Yeah, I agree. It's almost like, you know, it makes me feel like the field of autism is like your kids and they grow super fast. And then you check in in six months and you're like, wait, everything's changed. Everything's different. And so is true with the field of, of autism assessment. I think what's happened, Jeff, is that as it became very clear, both that we have a real advantage in terms of the effectiveness of intervention when we start early and as it became more and more clear that we could identify the autistic pattern in younger kids reliably, um, we've had to shift to testing children that are 18 months, two years, three years old in attempt to really maximize that period of development when we know um, we can have you know, the optimal impact. But what that's done is it has, in my opinion at least, made it very important that the clinician is skilled in identifying through observation and through history what those signs and what that pattern looks like. Because just to be frank, that um, the the pace of early diagnosis has outpaced our assessments. Mm. So the measures were designed to catch sort of a, a part of a, a norm group that's now really expanded and gotten younger. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I know that we've had conversations historically about, you know, whether it is a, a younger nonverbal child and being required historically to utilize certain batteries of assessments where it's like, you know, is that always the most appropriate? Or even the question of, you know, at what point are intelligence assessments part of the battery and when did those have value? So as as the field has progressed, has there been 
any more clarity to, you know, we should have a variety of tools. We should have more individualization in our testing protocols. Has that been part of this flux? Yeah, definitely. Definitely it is um, part of the larger conversation in terms of people who really focus on autism assessment criteria, best practice, et cetera. I guess I'd say maybe in two ways that occur to me. One is the development of new tests or expanding the populations on which tests are normed, or, um, but that takes a long time. Um, it's the scientific process and it's a lot of data collection and a lot of analysis. Um, so I think that part of what happens is that we have just the field has um, looked to the clinician to be able to use parts of different tests in order to get the picture that they need. Um, and so what you've seen in terms of whether insurance, what what criteria insurance has to cover an evaluation or how we talk amongst each other about what makes the best practice evaluation, it's become a, a more standard for people to say, um, you know, in this case, I used this. In this case, I had to use this. In this case, I had to use this because you're needing to put together something for that um, child that's not necessarily, you know, the one that they wrote the book on 15 years ago or that they normed the tests on that long ago. No, and, and it makes sense. It, it almost feels like it's going to continue to be a moving target that we're going to fine tune and get better at each year, better at each decade as we go forward, but it's, it is a moving target. One of the things that I think comes to mind for me is you have a large population that maybe never even had access to diagnostics before. You have underserved populations, whether that's uh, demographically, culturally, and now you have so many children or adolescents in need and so few providers. What are some of the leverage points? Because I do want to get into the testing, but I think understanding the landscape of where we're starting is important. How in the world are psychologists able to adequately meet the access issue that's out there right now? Right. I was thinking that as you were talking, just this is an access to care issue. And um, from my perspective, I think that psychologists are a little bit, um, oh, maybe late to the game and understanding how fast that wave is moving and how far behind we've been in terms of being able to meet meet the needs of um, kids, in part because autism awareness is expanding so much um, and incident rates are expanding. And then there's this backlog of people who never did get identified. So you're also seeing older kids or, like you said, different communities that have lacked access to care. You know, um, and you know this, Jeff, because, you know, here at ABS Kids, we've really been focused on it. I think it comes down to how do we use um, experienced expert clinicians with other types of providers or in training settings in a way that... Um, can help people feel confident identifying autism without maybe the reliance on the full battery of data that we used to think was necessary. Um, and I think part of the truth is that for the the 25 years that I've been involved in this field, probably you too, what you know, we've grown 
in terms of our understanding of the pattern of autism. And so I think as a field, we don't necessarily, we need to be able to sort of look at the sacred cows we have and say, do we really need that? We, un we understand now that this, you know, this type of stereotypic motor behavior in, in a child coupled with this communication development pattern usually means autism. Um, and so I think as we get better at that, we also have to be able to say, all right, let's move on and let's tackle this next issue um, rather than always needing every single piece of data to clarify. And I think that's just part of the natural progression of developing expertise as a field. Um, but then getting back to your original question, once an, uh, you know, an individual provider has developed that expertise, how do we use other people or train other people to be able to identify it without needing the 5, 10, 15, 20 years of seeing you know, thousands of autistic kids? So no, for example, here we use a psychometrist um, to do some of that data collection, mm -hmm. um, and that's allowed us to really see more kids. We've shortened our appointments. Um, we have more training. Um, and, and here, at least in Utah, we do a lot of observational training for people who are new to the field, but a lot of um, support from experts who can say, see that behavior, that key in on that, that's what we need you to look at. That's meaningful. Yeah. And I mean, Ed, I'm going to go back and just kind of think about the history that you probably experienced and that I experienced as well. 15 to 20 years ago, it felt like it was more subjective diagnostics. It's looking at characterization of behavior. Now we have a little bit more data-driven practice, which probably allows for the clinician to be the interpreter, but allows for the psychometricians, allows for the students to help to gather some of that initial data so that you know the whole package is there for the clinician to interpret meet with the family get their eyes on it but you're not needing 10 12 hours for the assessment is that you can truncate it a little bit because the the initial data gathering has been done is that is that a kind of a good synopsis of what we're seeing yeah i think i think that's right and um I guess I'd put it in the context then of this larger growth within the field that was database, which is, hey, this pattern is robust. It's reliable. It's something that you can um, count on of, in terms of being um, confident about your diagnosis. Um, and in terms of like individual data, the pieces that we really need in order to say, yes, is this autism, no, is it autism, have to really do with, again, um, are, is communication delayed and not just speech, but the way that people communicate non-verbally, the way that they make friends or socialize, that's that one group of criteria um, that is required to have an autism spectrum disorder and then it's coupled with this pattern of uh, what we call restricted repetitive behaviors when those two things occur together and you're able to identify it that's autism um that that's easier said than done of course but i think that um especially with little kids um we're talking about two three four year olds it's difficult to test them particularly if they don't have good communication strategies. So the individual data points that you get from any one test um, have to be interpreted um, in light of a good behavioral history 
and your clinical observations. And I think if we can, as we've challenged ourselves to really focus on that, we can also then focus on um, access to care and timeliness and, you know, some efficiencies that, that get the ball moving into treatment. Yeah, and I, I think we both agree that it is easier said than done, but I'd love, I'd love to get into the, the done process of, you know, how, how does this work? I mean, if we were to talk to a family right now that was listening maybe to the podcast and help them just to understand, you know, and maybe we can go by a couple different buckets. Maybe we can go by the bucket of, you know, the, the older child, the school-aged child versus the younger child. How would you define to that family? You know, this is what you might expect. It might differ, but this is the general idea of what to expect through the diagnostic process. And maybe we start young. Start young? Okay. You know, I think that in some ways I start with both, I start with both groups by by saying, hey, I'm going to collect some information, but this is a little bit different than a medical test and that I am not going to take an MRI. I'm not going to take a blood test. There's no biological markers that right now I can look at that are going to help me with this. This is what's called a behavioral diagnosis. So I'm going to really look at and I'm trained to look at behavior in the past and behavior now. And then what what you want from me is, hey, what do we do to help make the future the best it can be for this child. So what a parent could expect is that they're they're going to um, be interviewed by their clinician again about their their child's behavior, what they see, because of course they're they're the experts. They've lived with that child. Their parent instinct knows that kid. Um, and I listen really carefully if parents tell me, hey, I think something's going on. That is um, more important to me than. Uh, data that I get on a form that somebody fills out. Um, that usually takes about an hour. It's a thorough interview. Then we ask the parent to to fill out some questionnaires, which helps us answer the question, hey, how far or how different is this child from what we'd consider typical development? So, not different in terms of their value, but are they delayed in terms of their skills? Or do they have more problem behaviors than most kids? Because that's a question that a lot of parents have, which is, hey, is he just a three-year-old? Like, are we just in the toddler teens? Um, or is this something different? And so part of the, the helpfulness of those questionnaires is it lets me answer, hey, when I compare them to thousands of other kids and what moms and dads saw in them, they do look different. Um, and then the other key component is um, a clinical observation. So another reason that they're coming in is they want someone who is trained, again, to look for the behaviors that fall within that autistic pattern to be able to see their child and identify them in um, a real setting. Um, and I think that has been done typically through evaluations like the ADOS, the Autism Diagnostic Observation Schedule, which provides a structure for that observation and a way of saying, hey, if you see this many behaviors in this period of time, that's associated with kids who go on to get an autism spectrum disorder. The CARS is another one. Um, as we've moved into telemedicine, there have been um, some other assessments that we'll employ, like the telepeds out of Vanderbilt. Um, but that allows for that clinical observation to be um, 
standardized in some way, but also communicated to people who are assessing our evaluation in, in terms of best practice or um, does it provide enough information for access to care or communicates down the line to other professionals who are going to be working with that child that this was used. And so this is kind of what was seen and what was identified. Um, wow. And then, of course, you know, the most important part of treatment is then we sit down and say, am I seeing what you see? Let me explain what I'm seeing and what that means in terms of my analysis, um, what I would recommend that you do, and, you know, what that means for you and your family, what questions you might have, et cetera. I think that just the the format that you take, and, and I think this must be appreciated by the families, is that they're seen as part of the expertise in the decision-making process, is that their information is valued and it's extremely valuable. But there's another part to this that just knowing knowing you personally, I would imagine, is a big part of what you're trying to be able to do with the family. Um, but it's we can all go into a test and we might have an assumption and we're OK with that slight fear of, you know, my life might be different from and from an answer. But that doesn't really prepare us for hearing it from a professional, from having to digest that, you know, there might be a different path going forward. It might be a great path for me and my family, but I might have a different path than what I originally had planned in my head. How do you help parents process through change? Change is hard. Um, how do you help them with that piece? It's, it's interesting. I wonder if you've experienced this as well, because I'll go back to the historical context. When I first started doing this about 20 years ago, um, more parents were unprepared. And now parents come in and they've Googled and they've had their mother-in-law tells them that they're concerned about autism. So the word itself tends not to be, um, or the diagnosis or term tends not to be unquestioned um, or un, you know, out of the blue for most people. And in some ways, um, I've found the challenge is they are aware a lot of times that treatment is available. And of course, that's, you know, my ultimate goal is um, the diagnoses are only meaningful in terms of how they help guide someone's development further in some ways. Um, but I think that in some way, <laughs> to, to a certain degree, I want to pause with them and say, you know, this this is a change. This is a change. This marks the occasion in which you're not looking every day and saying, maybe, maybe not. This marks the day when I've, I'm saying it is, and this is what it looks like. And here are some things that your future might entail. Um, and almost getting him to stop at that point because it, involving yourself in a treatment plan or involving yourself in that child's life in an um, authentic way means, okay, I really understand that this is a change, something I didn't anticipate. That question's gone. So when I leave this office, my life is looking different. Um, and hopefully do that in a supportive way. Um, I think in a, uh, uh, validating way that this child is still special, that you know them better, that there is going to be a way to communicate with them and experience joy, attachment, um, growth, mm -hmm. all the things that you want as a parent. 
Yeah. And I mean, that, that seems like a process to me. It doesn't seem like it's a, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you how to do it. And then in 20 minutes, you'll have this down. It's It, it feels like it's a continued process. And the one thing that, at least for me, that I would always encourage is that families continue that process, is that they make sure that they find that support network, that they, if they need somebody to talk to, is that they find the the therapeutic team to be a part of it or find other families going through similar processes. Um, with this younger population, um, one of the things that I think has probably made your job harder over time is the fact that you have a more diverse group of people coming in looking for diagnoses is that historically the the diagnostics with autism kind of hit more of a heterogenic sort of population base just because of access to care or, or uh, recognition of need or whatever it might have been. How does culture and even some of just the demographic kind of components affect your diagnostics. And it, it, it's probably not going to affect necessarily your decision making, but there's probably inputs that you need to take into place. Is there a piece of that that you have to interpret differently? I've, I've heard a lot about uh, trauma-assumed care. So, I mean, is there something to that where maybe you have some younger children that have um, maybe been seen as more defiant or oppositional that, you know, some of this might not just be the social emotional behaviors. It might have something else. What are you seeing in the field right now? Yeah. So, I mean, at, at one level, some of the diversity is uh, cultural uh, uh, in terms of language barriers. Um, and so there's ongoing, always talk about how do we provide an accurate, fair assessment if, for example, we're using an interpreter or if we're using a test that was normed on that heterogeneic population that you were referring to. Um, I think, again, I go back to part of it is being a good clinician because this is a lot of times this is behavioral. Um, uh, and so the idea or the option necessity even to observe the child ourselves can um, go beyond that language barrier. But I think we do have to be careful like when we're asking parents questions or when we are giving them the, uh, especially if we're um, using forms that weren't again normed on the um, language, the native language of that um, parent, it, we have to be careful that they really understand. We have to be careful with English speakers that they understand, hey, this is what I mean when I say repetitive behaviors, because we live this field, but they don't. <laughs> and so it's like, you know, I'm not going to understand um, uh, our IT person. He's talked tech language to me and I have to say, slow down and say, say it normally or whatever the case might be. Um, but I do think language is an issue that we always have to be careful about. Um, and also, when we communicate things like the diagnosis, I, I, our team has been conscious of being able to really practice saying, clearly your child has autism. Because I think sometimes when we skirt around it, and especially if you're skirting around it with someone who doesn't, is uh, that your words are being translated, it's not clear and that's not a good evaluation either. Um, but other diverse issues include, you know, what comes to mind is, um, the diversity on the autism spectrum, which includes 
young kids who don't have language problems. So they don't, mm-hmm. they don't have speech problems. They have communication issues. Um, I feel like, and I've talked to, to my director here quite a bit about how in Utah, <clears throat> because we've had some good diagnostic options for a decade or so, and I think there's more public knowledge about autism. We're seeing more and more three-year-olds who have no language or no speech delay. Um, and that's a different assessment. There's a different... Uh, we have to do more, I think, to gather information on those kids. Same thing's true if someone has, has a complex trauma history or in some ways um, uh, uh, birth trauma or mm-hmm. medical trauma. Uh, because again, this is a behaviorally diagnosed condition, then you're piecing apart different behaviors and trying to determine their meaning. And so those are complex evaluations sometimes uh, just require more thorough gathering of that data, understanding it, checking it, processing it. No, I mean, your job is not easy. I mean, you're you're trying to be <laughs> able to, you, you, you might have some tests, you might have some surveys, you might have the observations, but then you have all these historical factors, environmental factors, cultural factors. It's not an easy job. And I would imagine it gets tougher as the child gets older. So what is the, what's the big difference that you're seeing in your testing methodology, and I know this is broadly speaking, but as a child gets older and maybe is in adolescence or late childhood, do you approach your diagnostics a little bit differently? Do you look for different things? Do you assess uh, different um, abilities? What's what's the change? Yeah, so one thing you, you kind of referred to this earlier, we would do, um, we are definitely going to be more um, successful at getting results for IQ testing. When a child is between, sometimes at five, sometimes a little bit younger, you can get a read on it, but five, six, seven becomes the sort of research standard for kind of a, a valid IQ test. Um, and it's an important data point in a diagnosis. Um, one, it's part of DSM criteria that your delays in those two areas I mentioned, social communication and restricted repetitive behaviors are not due to lower IQ or an intellectual delay. Um, and I also think that increasingly it, it then provides um, a sense of that all important question to parents, which is where does my child fall on the severity of autism spectrum? Um, and you know, IQ, I, IQ is um, in my mind sort of essential for those older kids you can also get into, well, how do they learn in general? That's a little bit of a neuropsych evaluation because there are all kinds of um, learning and cognitive functions we know are often um, also compromised for kids with autism, such as executive functioning, um, verbal skills, even with fluent language speakers. Um, So pragmatic uh, language can also be problematic, things like that. The other complication, or the other two complications I can think of, one, you just have a longer behavioral history. There's a lot more data together, a lot more complicated data. Um, and then also um, expectations for social skills uh, are different as children progress, right? Um, and sometimes that's a deficit when you're assessing a young child, because you might see um, what we what we here have really um, locked onto an article that talks about a research article um, that talks about the pink flags for autism. So not the red flags, but the pink flags. 
um, kind of more subtle deficits of autism. We might see those, but until a child maybe reaches um, first grade, school age, fourth grade is a key, I think transition stage in terms of your social skills, those deficits might not show up. At the same time, if you're assessing an older child, what you know, what do you expect in terms of communication skills, conversational skills, insight, uh, inference? We have to recalibrate our minds to, uh, um, and we definitely need and can use standardized testing more reliably than to say, this is off or no, this is within this typical range. Yeah, I mean, as both a parent as a and as a clinician, I think that having that information is critical. With the, the younger kids, is that there's a high likelihood that you're going to have intensive sort of interventions, is that you're going to have uh, more comprehensive plans. As you start to understand a little bit more about the child through some some additional testing, as their skill sets start to develop, where they become able to access some of the other instruments. I would imagine is that you're finding more and more frequently that, you know, I need to change my treatment plan. I need to evaluate a little bit differently on, do I just focus on specific targets and increase the amount of time into inclusive environments? Or do I need to find better community partners? Are, is there a role for therapy for this child to be able to start to process their feelings? Like, I, I feel like, you know, you get to that point where you need additional information What's the role of, I guess, the ABA community and the school community in making sure that there's some continuity getting back to the psychologist at these critical junctures to be able to say, hey, there's more information I can give you now. Let's make sure this happens. Like, how does that communication work? You know, I mean, again, getting back to the this key element of we're making a behavioral diagnosis those two groups that that you mentioned as examples your aba provider or your teacher boy do they have access to a wide variety of behavioral observations you know so a lot of times we're reaching out to them with again those standardized questionnaires or here at abs we have the luxury of emailing or picking up the phone and and or i i get to look at their um data and their progress towards goals and things like that. <clears throat> um, and I think that's essential because those people can key you in on where to focus. So if you start out with all kinds of information and you're trying to figure out, okay, what um, what are all the elements of um, potential difficulty? If you have someone say, this is what I see, boy, this kid cannot get organized. He's really smart, but he loses everything. Then I'm going to zero in on executive functioning deficits. Um, if it's, hey, this kid has so many problems transitioning, can't leave the house, um, uh, is always distracted, I'm going to look at something like anxiety and or sensory issues and really kind of zero in there. Um, because you're right, aside from just yes or no, do they have autism, there's this whole profile that becomes um, accessible that we're able to identify better, especially as someone gets older and it includes all those elements, motor, social, sensory, mental health, um, skill, adaptive skills, all those kinds of things. So the more data we can get from other people that helps us really zero in, the, I think the more effective we can be. If you, if you were to narrow that down and say, you know, 
and I guarantee there's probably 10, 20 reasons to say, get this child back for reevaluation, for more information, for additional testing. But if you were to say, you know, these might be the three things that I would highlight as the most important. Um, what, what might what might be some of those triggers that would say, you know, we already know that the child has been diagnosed with autism at the age of three. We're at the age of seven right now, and I'm seeing this child start to withdraw from their community. I'm seeing, I, I, what are those kind of key priorities that you'd say, get them back in, let's get more information, let's get more testing? Yeah, that's such a good question. I love that. I mean, any any change in change in sort of typical behavior, so again, if this child was fairly interactive and then was withdrawing quite a lot or, you know, was tantruming but fairly even, a stable, even mood, um, but all of a sudden was irritable and couldn't, you were dealing with outbursts every day, that's the kind of stuff that um, it might be helpful to have someone look into, particularly if those bump up against sort of these life stage transitions, like I'm now spending all day in school or I mentioned the fourth grade, uh, in my mind, that stands out as a time when kids start to have to think a little more conceptually. And, and so that gets to be harder for them. Um, junior high, um, adult transition or planning for transition into adulthood, those are kind of key pivotal developmental transition points. Um, I think also if you're seeing um, new behaviors added on that are problematic behaviors, maladaptive behaviors, sometimes those can be an indication that either they don't have enough support um, or we don't understand the kind of support that they need. Um, a lot of complaints um, for autistic kids uh, are physical rather than um, they have a trouble pinpointing their emotions and pinpointing sort of like what happened in their relationships or in their experience to make them feel some way. So they express it as my stomach hurts or my headache hurt, my head hurts or something like that. And um, piecing out how much of that may be um, more somatic symptoms, meaning um, psychological symptoms or psychological distress that's manifested in body symptoms or just inappropriate um, language for indicating distress because they're not sure how to locate it in terms of their thoughts and emotions. That's so interesting. It's uh, maybe a few weeks back, I was just actually talking with a parent about the same sort of thing. And it's like, my child kept coming home with uh, saying that their arm hurts. It's like, well, what was going on? And it really, I mean, slightly, maybe a little bit of the arm, but it wasn't. It was more of the social emotional components of what was happening at school. But that was the the way to open the dialogue. That was the way to start the communications that there's something wrong. And you almost have to be an investigator. <laughs> now, the other thing I would say is lack of progress or inability to learn at an expected level. So mm -hmm. um, I think that's also some time where you want to, especially because we're diagnosing so young, we're not at the very forefront able to give a lot of information about this child's cognitive ability, um, profile, strengths and weaknesses. Um, and so we're a little bit more reliant on people down the road to say, hey, they're not learning at the rate they should or academics are harder than their teachers and IEP team expected or something like that. Yeah, no, for sure. And I I, I feel like we can go on this topic forever because there's so much that, A, I don't understand about the process that needs to, it's a complicated process. Each one of these children is so unique, so individual. Each experience is so unique. Um, 
But I do want to give you a chance right now because one of the things that are, I think the field of service delivery within autism needs to continue to evolve and get better at is the open dialogue across different provider types to be able to utilize the information that they're learning from different specialists. So, I mean, if you were to kind of paint your perfect picture of, you know, how does that information flow or where would you love to be able to see it go in the future so that everybody has this interconnected holistic approach to treating the autistic experience, what would that look like in, in your uh, utopia? <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, maybe I'll start with, and I can I can use this opportunity to make a, a pitch with you. I mean, I, I've mentioned this before at some of our meetings. I feel like we could do a better job as psychologists at trickling down to our ABA team, even at the basis of, hey, what is this child's intellectual capability? Um, I think that that's a place to start. If we can get good at identifying that, um, I think that could be meaningful to the ABA team here at ABS. And I think that it's very meaningful to parents because it's there's a diverse um, spectrum of learning capabilities across autism, right? We can't mm -hmm. talk about autism without using spectrum. If if I was getting getting closer to my utopia, I would have a learning profile <laughs> that we could somehow clearly communicate to other providers, teachers, ABA providers, doctors, things like that, that would include executive functioning, attention, memory, that, all, the kind of neuropsych stuff that you that you can get, but uh, finding a way to really tailor that into practical goal planning rather mm -hmm. than you know, I think sometimes what we struggle with as psychologists is, and what I've really learned from working with ABA providers is we're kind of conceptual, you know, we're a little abstract, we're a little ivory tower. Um, so that would be a utopia. I would love to be able to say to, you know, Megan next door who runs our center, here's this kid's learning profile. He's a visual learner. Um, he has a five minute attention span right now. His biggest executive functioning are shifting and initiation, you know, and being able to be really his biggest social deficits are this. Um, I think that way utopia <laughs> would be that we'd even that out then with um, social emotional functioning. So we would be able to get even more detailed about here's where these kids social deficits are. And here's where their emotional deficits are. Let's explain it a little bit better. One of my colleagues says, you know, early on we can answer, are you driving a Toyota or Honda? I don't mean that to be insensitive. It's just kind of, we want to tell you what kind of kid you have. Um, later on, we could tell you, is it a red Honda? Is it, you know, I'm, mm -hmm. I, I, have, I have no knowledge about cars, but, you know, how, what's the horsepower? <laughs> that type of stuff. Yeah. Um, does that answer your question? That no, I, th I think so. I mean, I, I love that idea because, you know, as we are fine tuning and, and we talked about the evolution of even the psychological diagnostics. Okay. But what you're saying is ideal for us to be able to almost use the the. Uh, I guess the up and coming science of AI to be able to prioritize goal planning and. Yes, it takes the human experience to be able to say, well, no, I disagree with this clinically is that this might not make sense, but it gives you a framework if you're able to collect some of that data to start conceptualizing, you know, where my priorities might need to start in treatment 
and then evolve from there. But I, I think all of those, I, I think that's that's where, you know, the treatment, if you're thinking holistically, that's where it needs to get. And it just takes time. And when you think about the journey that we've gone on over the 20 years is that, you know, it's we've seen the progress, we've seen the steps and it just it takes it takes time to get there because you need the data to be able to back up and support each step of the way. So it's hard. And the providers to get it right now. And mm-hmm. we're back to like, hey, we, access to care is important. And so you need you need people who are doing it. But, but yeah, it's fun. To, it's fun to think about how we leverage. Hey, we've made all these gains. That's allowed us to get here. If we can mm-hmm. now let go of some of the things we don't need and push it forward a little bit, how do we do that? Because Again, I think that psychologists are good at taking the DSM and operationalizing that, but we're still a little bit abstract. And what ABA does so well is it takes that and it has the rubber meet the road. But if we can make our, we know the value of our reports, but I think we our, our challenge is to make sure that other people understand them. Otherwise, they're just, they're, you know, they're sort of put aside in the medical chart and not referred to, which is unfortunate. Yeah, but at the same time, those are all things that I know that we can do and that we can accomplish. So I love that. I love those actionable items. And I think that, you know, between the fields of psychology and ABA, and even as you trickle down into speech, occupational therapy, into schools, medical planning, all these things benefit from us being able to utilize information, which means the information has to be digestible and actionable. And I think we can get there. But um Dr. Roth, I appreciate all your insight and I appreciate the time that you spent with us today. And uh, I guarantee we'll have you back on again because it feels (laughs) like there's always something new on on the horizon. But thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. Such a pleasure. Thanks for all your support for what we do. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly podcast by visiting ABS Kids. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week.